welcome to the preaching ministry of Port St. Lucie Bible Church. We are a Christian church whose goal is to faithfully preach Christ from Scripture so that we might better love and serve Him. We pray that this message from God's Word would engage your mind with the truth and inspire your heart to obey Christ. Here's today's message. All right, well, we are in Acts chapter 15. As, retu- as we return there, we, are, um, we have been studying this Jerusalem council uh, that will ratify its final verdict today. Uh, the apostles will draft and, and then they will deliver a letter uh, to the church in Antioch, about 300 miles north, uh, announcing how Scripture affirms that Christians do not need to observe the Mosaic law, was given to Israel at Sinai, uh, nor must we be circumcised, uh, which for centuries had designated the people of God, those who were born as descendants, physical descendants of Abraham. Additionally, compelling and undeniable evidence from God's Spirit has proven that both Jews and Gentiles are justified by Uh, by grace through faith alone, and that true descendants of Abraham are not those that are born of the flesh, uh, but those who are born again by the Spirit of God, uh, by grace through faith. Therefore, Galatians chapter 3 and verse 26 assures us, quote, there is neither Jew nor Greek, uh, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus, And if you belong to Christ, Paul writes, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to promise. Our conclusion then uh, from this Jerusalem council uh, must be that simply being born an ethnic Jew affords you nothing. Uh, And as the new covenant is ratified through the once for all sacrifice of the body and the shedding of the blood of our Lord Jesus. Israel's old covenant, Hebrews teaches us, is now obsolete. Consequently, Christians do not practice the Mosaic law as it is given at Sinai. Therefore, James states in verse 19, Therefore, it is my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles, but that we write to them that they abstain from things contaminated by idols and from fornication and from what is strangled and from blood. For Moses from ancient generations has in every city those who preach him, meaning preach Moses, since he is read in the synagogues every Sabbath. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them to send to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brethren, and they sent this letter by them. Here's the letter. The apostles and the brethren who are elders to the brethren in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia who are from the Gentiles, greetings. Since we have heard that some of 
our number to whom we gave no instruction have disturbed you with their words unsettling your souls. It seemed good to us, having become of one mind, to select men to send to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul. Think about that. Their beloved Barnabas and Paul. There's no schism here. Men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we have sent Judas and Silas, uh, who th- whom themselves have will also report the same things by word of mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these essentials, that you abstain from things sacrificed to idols, and from blood, and from things strangled, and from fornication. If you keep uh, yourselves free from such things, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent away, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. When they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. Judas and Silas, also being prophets themselves, encouraged and strengthened the brethren with a lengthy message. After they had spent time there, they were sent away from the brethren in peace to those who had sent them out. Some translations or some versions say, but it seemed good to Silas to remain there. Uh, But we know Paul and Barnabas stayed in Antioch teaching and preaching with many others also the word of the Lord. So the verdict is in. Under the new covenant, Christians, both Jew and Gentile, are not obligated to the ordinances of the Mosaic law, circumcision, dietary restrictions, feasts, festivals, Sabbaths, etc. These were prescribed by God only for the nation of Israel and only under the old covenant. And these were at least partly prescribed because the nature of the old covenant was dependent upon preserving the Jewish race. Uh, They preserved them as distinct so that an identifiable savior of Israel and an heir of King David. A Messiah could come and fulfill all the promises that God had made uh, during that period under which the Old Covenant was in effect. Those dietary restrictions, ordinances, circumcision, the identities of the 12 tribes of Israel were preserved through these distinctive practices. So Israel would would not assimilate into the surrounding cultures. And and so that they could recognize that Jesus was the one who was born king uh, from the tribe of Judah. You had to preserve these tribes so that you could see that prophecy was actually fulfilled. The genealogies of Israel, still preserved at this time, uh, records were in the temple, As James is writing, or as the Jerusalem Council is drafting this letter, the genealogies were still preserved. Uh, They assured Jesus truly was the literal and rightful heir to David's throne uh, through his adoptive father, Joseph. I've stated on previous occasions, this is the reason Pontius Pilate nailed the sign above 
Christ's head, which read, this is in all four Gospels, it's important, this is the king of the Jews. That is a fact that that came out in discovery during Jesus' trial. This is the king of the Jews. Pilate had the... There were resources there to prove who was the proper heir, and Jesus was truly the king of the Jews. That wasn't just made up. Pontius Pilate came to that conclusion from his own discovery at trial. So God promises to King David and Israel, all those promises are literally fulfilled on the third day when Jesus was raised from the dead, and Acts 2 verse 30 states, Christ assumed the throne of David. Hence, or therefore, Jewish genealogies. From that point forward, Titus 3 verse 9 says, uh, genealogies are unprofitable and worthless. Therefore, God allowed all of those records that were held in the temple of the tribes and their identities and the lineages, the genealogies, God allowed them all to be burned by a general named Titus in the year 70 AD. Not important anymore. Any other temple sacrifice or offering prescribed by the Mosaic law, they have become abominable to God. Any alternate to his son's sacrifice. And all old covenant ordinances, which were again designed to keep the ethnicity of Israel distinct, dietary laws, feasts, festivals, circumcision, they have fulfilled their purpose. And therefore the law as prescribed for Israel at Sinai is now abolished. God makes no distinction, folks. Jew and Gentile are one in Christ. You follow me? Because there's a lot of people today that are really struggling to understand this. The righteousness of the law, however, does still serve a practical function. Galatians 3 verse 20 says, uh, 3 verse 24 says, The law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, for those who believe in Christ, now that faith has come, we're no longer under a tutor. It's a tool God uses to show us our unrighteousness that we might call out for mercy and forgiveness. Therefore, The ruling and the judgment of this Jerusalem council is that Christians absolutely do not have to practice the Mosaic law or its related ordinances. Eat what you want. Does this dissolution, dissolution of the Mosaic ordinances, does it indicate that all morals and ethics disappear? It's not a trick question. Does it suggest in any way that God's command, thou shalt not murder, is no longer binding 
at all for mankind? Or, or does the expiration of the old covenant, does it mean sin no longer exists? No. No. It means we no longer sacrifice a cow or give burnt offerings or those other items specific to Israel under the Old Covenant. Morality, by contrast to those, it, it, morality did not originate at Mount Sinai. That's not the first place that sin was called sin. Human morality and ethics are eternal reflections of, of our holy and righteous creators, uh, our creator God who never changes. Morality is a reflection of our God in heaven. He is holy and righteous. Morality never changes. God doesn't change, so morality never changes. The fall of Adam, the murder by Cain. Folks, these types of things long predate Mount Sinai. Prohibitions against stealing, adultery, covetousness, and idolatry. Sins that we will see eventually are engraved on stone tablets, the Ten Commandments. They were not invented for Israel at Mount Sinai. Morality and our human culpability has always existed. Then at Sinai, morality was interwoven by God into the Mosaic law, the law of Moses, to create uh, ordinances that would be beneficial to Israel uh, for them to worship and to be able to see the substance of Christ when he arrived. Um, they worshiped God uh, with these ordinances under the old covenant. But when those Levitical sacrifices and ordinances expired, that occurred at the cross of Calvary. When Christ gave the once-for-all final sacrifice for sin, once those Levitical sacrifices and ordinances expired, God's classification of rebellion and His definition of sin did not expire. What a, what a ridiculous thought. Only those prescribed sacrifices and ordinances that are contained in the law expired because all offerings and sacrifices are fulfilled in Christ. Yet God's assessment of our human condition and sin continues as it always has ever since the fall in the Garden of Eden. Those commands engraved on stone tablets, we refer, we refer to them as the Ten Commandments, uh, those commands existed before Mount Sinai and continue thereafter in perpetuity. Nine of the Ten Commandments are expressly restated by Jesus and his apostles uh, while our Sabbath, as we discussed last week, uh, was transferred, not from Saturday to Sunday. The Sabbath was not transferred. No one had permission to transfer the Sabbath from Saturday to Sunday. The Sabbath was transferred from Saturday. Our rest, it was transferred from Saturday to Jesus 
okay? We rest in the finished work of Christ at Calvary. Hebrews 4 verse 11 tells us there remains a Sabbath for the people of God. Be diligent to enter his rest. It's not a day. We rest in the finished work of Christ. So we still, in Christ, still continue to keep that command. It's just not only for a day. But know this, God is not capricious. Right and wrong have never changed. And human morality is forever engraved by God, not on stone tablets. Morality is engraved by God on the human conscience. Was from the beginning, it never changes. So as I illustrated last Sunday, James and the Jerusalem Council are not supplying the church a different, you know, less restrictive code of moral ethics in Acts chapter 15. Uh, these four things called in verse 28 essentials. Word could also be translated the same way, obligations. These four things uh, are supplied as provisions. Provisions, what do you mean? These four items are supplied as provisions for integrating Jews and Gentiles together in the local church. Integration has been a primary concern over the last two chapters of Acts. That's called seeking context. The church is not going to continue the burden of circumcision in observing the law of Moses as the Pharisees at the outset of this council had requested in verse 5. The letter to Antioch isn't addressing morality per se, though fornication is immoral. Rather, this letter accommodates phasing out the Mosaic ordinances so that full assimilation between Jew and Gentile can occur. Let me explain. Remember, Antioch is not an exclusively Gentile church. All of these churches in Syria and Cilicia and Galatia that have been founded are comprised of both Jews and Gentiles trying to live and worship together in unity. And I believe, I have a very high confidence, you'll have to decide for yourselves. I believe the key to understanding James's four provisions that are adopted by the council, the reasons explained in verses 20 through 21. Now, there are other views concerning these four things that you can weigh the merits of. What I offer you is an explanation rooted in James's own words here. Verse 20, write to them, that they abstain from things contaminated by, verse 29 says, things sacrificed to idols. In fact, Acts 21, if you look forward ahead into the future, Acts 21 verse 25 will restate this same list and refers to this as meat sacrificed to idols. 
gives us a little better idea what we're talking about here. Things contaminated by idols. So, so this is the, me, is the meaning. It's meat sacrificed to idols. James asked them to abstain from meat sacrificed to idols and from fornication and from what is strangled and from blood. Why? Why? Verse 21. Look with me. For Moses from ancient generations has in every city those who preach Moses, since he, Moses, is read in the synagogues every Sabbath. So this declaration is rooted in the fact Moses has been read every week for generations. James's and the Jerusalem Council's four provisions here have to do with laying the law of Moses to rest with some dignity. James wants Gentiles to consider how deeply ingrained these ordinances are in the minds of Jews. It's been read for generations with these families. At the same time, James also knows that Jesus during his earthly ministry, uh, made all foods clean. James knows that. In Mark 7, verse 15, uh, Jesus states in regard to food and drink, anything that you might consume that enters into you, uh, Jesus says, nothing that enters a man can defile him. Because it does not go into his heart, but into his stomach and is eliminated. Thus, Jesus declared all foods clean. All of them. Nothing that enters into a man can defile him. That's a pretty broad statement. Not long after this Jerusalem council, the Apostle Paul will write in a letter to Colossae, this is in Colossians 2 verse 16, let no one judge you in regard of food or drink. Let no one judge you. So a Christian has liberty in Christ to consume Whatever your palate desires, yet not all things that you dare to consume are edifying to a group at a luncheon. Had the liberty that Paul and Barnabas had accurately been preaching in Antioch, had it created a social barrier between Jew and Gentile? It appears that it had. Only a couple of years prior to this council, James had sent some men to Antioch, and they apparently couldn't stand to eat with the Gentiles there. You know, we always blame the Jews for that debacle. Jews from Jerusalem, uh, in Galatians chapter 2, who visited Antioch for withdrawing from the Gentiles to eat alone. We're like, that is so awful. Granted, they all eventually, including Paul and Bar- or excuse me, Peter and Barnabas, they came to acknowledge that their withdrawing from the meal was theological error. It, it was sinful. They will acknowledge we shouldn't have done that. Paul confronts Peter on the issue. 
But it also appears those same men returned to Jerusalem and said to James, this is my own rendering here, all right? It appears those same men returned to Jerusalem after that debacle and said to James something maybe similar to the following. We're sorry we caused a stir, but you should have seen some of the crud those Gentiles were eating up there. One guy walked up with a reptile gripped in his hand and tossed it right on our grill. Another was passing around some kind of blood recipe. Looked like a pudding of some kind. Uh, The Gentiles up there, James, practice no social etiquette when they're eating with the Jews. As they took us on a tour through town, one might have said, you know, we watched as one of their men picked up a side of meat being peddled, peddled by a temple prostitute. We don't know what she had been doing with it beforehand. But the man bragged about what a great deal he got on the meat sacrificed to idols, uh, but we saw the same price being charged for meat at the local supermarket. James, Gentiles may be free to eat whatever they like, but they also know that for generations there has been a synagogue in every city, and they know that the Jews have grown up listening to Moses read every Sabbath. And James, their exercise of liberty simply violates our cultural sensibilities. And now you're telling Us Jews everywhere, living in every city throughout Galatia, that in order for Jews to come to Christ, we are going to have to not only wholesale abandon our dietary preferences, we're also going to have to subject ourselves to Gentile dietary preferences. James, how is that not putting a stumbling block before the Jews who might potentially trust in Christ. Oh, and and James, we don't want to prevent freedom in Christ. And Paul and Barnabas are faithfully preaching grace. But the Gentiles who attend church, they're, they're running a little bit loose up there in Antioch. We saw some ladies dressed a little risque and that could potentially lead them to moral compromise. You know, it wouldn't hurt them to tighten up a little bit in Antioch. Tighten up the ship, we would say. What we need to realize about the city of Antioch, huge city, it was an exceedingly profane city. The influence of that culture over the church had the potential to become a serious problem. A professor from Dallas Seminary is the late Stanley Toussaint, wonderful man. Uh, he writes this, quote, This city, speaking of Antioch, was the third largest in the Roman Empire behind Rome and Alexandria. Located on the Orontes River, it was known as Antioch on the Orontes, In spite of the fact that it was a vile city, 
with gross immorality and ritual prostitution as part of its temple temple worship, the church at Antioch was destined to become the base of operations for Paul's missionary journeys. The Roman satirist named Juvenal complained. He said, quote, the sewage of the Syrian Orontes has for long been discharged into the Tiber. And by this, he meant that Antioch was so corrupt, so sexually immoral, it was impacting Rome more than 1,300 miles away. That's what an ancient uh, writer said about this city. It's exceedingly profane. The letter to Antioch from the Jerusalem Council, assuring that the Mosaic Law is no longer binding upon the Christian, also contains this warning. You better watch it. Never assume that removing the law of Moses reduces the Christian's standard of ethics. Because it doesn't. Morality doesn't change. Though Christians have been freed from the law and its ordinances, uh, Paul's epistle to Corinth, that will be written in only five years. Paul's epistle to Corinth will completely remove any doubt about the excellence of Christian ethics. True liberty knows it has limits. Romans 6, Paul will say, Shall we continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. So I take James's warning against fornication as ethical and included in this letter because sexual immorality remained an, an imminent threat in Antioch. And so that no one reading in Antioch this letter could, could make the mistake that this is now offering a license to sin. By the way, that is what a whole lot of modern theologians suggest it is. That these are the only four things that Christians have to concern themselves with. That is not at all why it's in here. As far as the prohibitions against meat sacrifice to idols, things strangled, and blood, I take all three entirely to be provisions to enhance integration between Jews and Gentiles together among all these new local churches that are popping up. So that the Jews who had for generations abstained from such things are not easily offended. Paul seemed to address a similar concern during our scripture reading in 1 Corinthians 8. Uh, James uh, then doesn't, his request doesn't seem that unusual when we look at it in light of our earlier scripture reading. Paul wrote to Corinth concerning food that had been sacrificed to idols. Quote, food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. But take care of this liberty of yours, that it does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. 
Because uh, you might not know this. Eating together is a major social engagement of Christians. Just letting you in on that. All James is saying to the Gentiles is this. Since you have brethren who are Jews in every one of these Gentile churches, please be mindful about what you bring to the church potluck. Paul asserts, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. The problem in Antioch, it's not an exact parallel to 1 Corinthians 8, but it falls within the the same general sphere of application and principle. Paul concludes on the topic of food, 1 Corinthians 10.23, all things are permissible, but not all things edify. Therefore, I'm not going to purposefully offend because true liberty in Christ understands that it has limits. And let me close with a final notation about this reference to consuming blood. Then if any of us still has an appetite, (laughs) we'll be going over to eat afterwards. You're all welcome to join us. Your visitor, please come join us for the fellowship potluck afterwards. You'll find resources that disagree with this. And, And I could be wrong. But I do not believe the prohibition against consuming blood is a theological prohibition here. I do think it was in Antioch and continues to be a social anathema. So don't do it. But if this was intended as a serious theological prohibition against consuming blood... I I do think that we would have received a similar warning repeated elsewhere in the general epistles later on. But we don't. Never becomes a concern with all the things stated beyond this point in time. So the following is my assessment. During the period of animal sacrifices, from Adam until Mount Calvary, Animal blood had been exclusively reserved by God to symbolize sin's atonement. Animal blood was a symbol for sacrificial atonement. So scripture told men not to consume it because life is in the blood. Not only did neighboring cultures practice all kinds of sick pagan rituals that consumed blood, there would have also arisen in Israel a confusion about the purpose of an animal's blood. 
Was it to be consumed as the pagans surrounding us would? Or was blood reserved to God exclusively as a sacrifice for sin's atonement? As the Old Testament believer would. Blood's only for atonement. During the Old Testament, life was to be perpetually associated with atonement through animal blood. So throughout the era of the animal sacrifices, believers were not permitted to consume blood. It was reserved exclusively for the purpose of sacrifice and atonement. Consuming blood was therefore, since the Garden of Eden, a theological anathema. Can't do it. And Jews absolutely abhorred it. So the Gentiles in Antioch were offending them through it. How about under Christ and the new covenant? Can we consume the life that is in the blood? Do you remember what Jesus told uh, those large crowds in John chapter 6? It was very controversial in his day. And most of Jesus' disciples quit following him after he said it. Because Jesus said, quote, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life inside yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. Life is in the blood. What do we do, symbolically, as an act, not of atonement, but in memory of atonement, every Lord's Supper. This is my blood shed for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The blood of Jesus once for all satisfied our Father. It was a one-time act of blood sacrifice, never repeated. One time in the Bible, it refers to Uh, The Bible refers to it as a propitiation or an appeasement, a satisfaction uh, for the wrath of God. Uh, God our Father is satisfied because Jesus paid the debt for our sins through giving his life and shedding his blood once for all. And without the shedding of blood, Hebrews 9.22 There is no forgiveness of sins. For all things are cleansed with blood. With Christ, eternal life is in the blood. And under the new covenant, Christians are commanded to consume it. Through a ceremony acknowledging that Christ shed his blood to grant us eternal life. The life is in the blood. And I expect, you can disagree... 
I expect the reason that the New Testament epistles do not restate this prohibition against blood is because there's really no way for Christians to confuse Christ's atonement with the blood of an animal. It's not a concern that would have been there in the Old Testament. There is no life for us in the animal's blood. Because we know full well that the blood of bulls and goats can never take away sins. For the believer, Hebrews 10.22 assures us that those two things, categorically unrelatable, not even in a similar classification. Christians today will never confuse the source of our atonement with animal blood, as an Old Testament believer may have. So I conclude, personally, there was nothing ceremonially unclean about the Gentiles in Antioch who were consuming it. You know, Remember, Jesus said that there is nothing that can enter into your body that can defile it. Nothing. If there had remained a theological prohibition in Antioch, Paul and Barnabas up there would have said something about it. They would have stopped the offense before it happened to the Jews. But the meat sacrificed to idols, the things that were strangled, especially the blood, were simply disgusting to the Jews and had remained a barrier to full assimilation of Jews and Gentiles in one church together. So James and the Jerusalem council ask, for the sake of unity and the integration of Christ's church into one, will the Gentiles please meet us halfway? We won't ask you to be circumcised if you will simply shop at Publix from now on. For the Gentiles, that that was an easy compromise. And therefore, the Jews and the Gentiles who received this letter from Antioch, we see that they now rejoice. This is an easy adjustment for assimilation of Jew and Gentile together. And they can eat together because from this point forward, we are truly one. You might not know this, but the first fellowship potluck in church history was held the following weekend. And in this case, the lesson for us today becomes pretty straightforward. As Christians, we, we are willing to yield to certain behaviors, certain liberties, uh, so as to not offend a weaker brother or sister and cause them to stumble. That's the enduring principle. We will abstain from certain things that are an offense for the sake of Christ's unity, for his church. Because the unity of the body is more essential than exercising your personal liberty. So we also abstain from certain behaviors while we are joined together in worship. Because there might be a weaker brother or a weaker sister. Might be offended. For them it might be detrimental. Last thought, then we'll eat. This does not suggest 
that someone who comes into the congregation, into a church, is allowed to enforce their preferences simply by saying, I'm offended. And the rest of us uh, then have to just comply with their request because they they say they're offended uh, or um, just simply someone has to claim an offense and the rest of us have to stop for the sake of unity. No, no. Uh, That demonstrates a polar opposite of the offended brother. Such demands would be expressed by a controlling brother, a legalist who's trying to, to make everyone conform to his or her preferences. And it was those demanding legalists trying to enforce circumcision on the church in Antioch that had prompted this Jerusalem council from the beginning. So you don't just conform because somebody wants you to do something, but all things will be done in unity. Christians will, will gladly surrender some of our liberties for the sake of unity. Still, liberty knows its limits, and we will not yield to demands of legalism in the church. And now that we have this all settled, completely settled, in the very next chapter, Paul will take a young man named Timothy, and he will circumcise him. Be glad you don't have my job. (laughs) That will be chapter 16, and we'll have an explanation for that. Let's pray and then eat. Father, as we are grateful that you brought us together in one body, in one church, and uh, so grateful that we are willing to overlook offenses even do what we can uh, within reason to accommodate and to make people feel comfortable and to enjoy uh, all the goodness that you have showered upon us. Uh, Lord, help us to be sensitive in that regard, uh, yet at the same time not be controlled uh, by those who would be legalists. The greater problem in our church, uh, our era today, this church era. And uh, help us to stand firm in the grace of, that you've shown us and forgiveness in Jesus Christ, uh, that we might proclaim uh, the wonderful mercies to a generation still to come.